Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a yearly podcast series that features leading scholars and experts discussing some of New York City's most important historic places and institutions. I'm your host, Peter Christian-Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History, which produces the show each fall for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, James E. Young talks about the 9-11 Memorial at the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. In the wake of the attacks on that day 20 years ago, debates swirled over what to do with Ground Zero. Some wanted to rebuild immediately, others wanted to leave the site hollowed. When the decision was made for a monument of some kind, over 5,000 proposals came in from around the world. Ten years after the devastation, the memorial was built. Here. Young reflects on his experience as one of the 13 jurors who evaluated those submissions, and connects the process and design vernacular to other similar memorials in recent decades, drawing on his book, The Stages of Memory. To hear the rest of this series, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. In April 2003, the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation called a press conference at the just-prepared Winter Garden of the World Financial Center in Lower Manhattan, located across West Street from what was then the gaping pit of Ground Zero. Here, the LMDC announced an open international design competition for a World Trade Center site memorial, and I was one of 13 members of the design jury introduced that day. Together with jurors Maya Lin, designer of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., and Paula Grant Berry, whose husband David died in the South Tower on 9-11, among other distinguished architects, artists, and public arts officials, we implored potential entrants to this open and blind competition to break the conventional rules of the monument, to explore every possible memorial medium in their expressions of grief, mourning, and remembrance for what would become the National September 11 Memorial. Within two months, we received some 13,800 registrations from around the world. And by the August 2003 deadline, we had received 5,201 official submissions from 62 nations and from 49 American states. Only Alaska was missing from the list. In June 2004, after six months of exhausting, occasionally wrenching debate and discussion, we announced our winning selection. The winning design, Reflecting Absence, by Michael Arad and Peter Walker, proposed two deeply recessed voids in the footprints of the former World Trade Center towers, each 200 feet square, with thin veils of water cascading into reflecting pools some 35 feet below, each with a further deep void at its middle. The pools were to be surrounded by an abacus grid of trees, even rows replicating the city grid when viewed west to east, seemingly natural random groves when viewed north to south that would deepen the volumes of the voids as they grew, even as they softened the hard square edges of the pools. This memorial would indeed reflect absence, even as it commemorated the lives lost with living, regenerating flora. Until that day in January 2004, the 9-11 memorial jurors were not allowed to speak to the press. But now, for the first time since our appointment nine months earlier, we could. The first question I took from a reporter caught me off guard. Knowing that you have written much about Holocaust negative form monuments in Germany, and that you were also on the jury that chose Peter Eisenman's design for the Berlin Denkmal for Europe's murdered Jews, it seems that you've basically chosen just another Holocaust memorial, the journalist said. And then he asked, is this true? 
Surprised and somewhat offended, I replied that obviously this design had nothing to do with Holocaust memorials. Michael Arad and Peter Walker's reflecting absence was a different kind of memorial, I insisted. But as I continued to formulate my response, I had to admit that in its formal preoccupations with loss, absence, and regeneration, reflecting absence may well be informed by Holocaust memorial vernaculars. These were, after all, preoccupations the artists shared with poets and philosophers, artists and composers. How to articulate a terrible void without filling it in? How to formalize irreparable loss without seeming to repair it? Then I thought of my fellow juror Maya Lin's description of her design for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. How, in her words, she imagined taking a knife and cutting into the earth, opening it up, an initial violence and pain that in time would heal. That is, she opened a space in the landscape that would open a space within us for memory. Instead of a positive V form, like a jutting elbow or spear tip or flying wedge military formation, she opened up the V's obverse space, a negative space to be filled by those who come to remember within its embrace. Moreover, as Lynn described it in her original proposal, the memorial is composed not as an unchanging monument, but as a moving composition to be understood as we move into and out of it. That is, as a monument is fixed and static, her memorial would be defined by our movement through its space, memory by means of perambulation and walking through. These elements of Lynn's design, including its black cut into the earth, as counterpoint to Washington's predominantly white neoclassical monoliths, have inspired an entire generation of German memorial artists struggling to formalize their own tortured memory of the victims of a genocide perpetrated in their national name. Still, in post 9-11 New York City, our jury's memorial questions were very different. How will the memorial remember the loss of human life, the murderous intent of the killers, the destruction of lower Manhattan? Will it remember these attacks as part of a larger attack on the United States, one that prompted what could be a 30-year war on terrorism? Will it remember the lives of the victims or only mourn their deaths? Will it glorify the sacrifice of firefighters and police officers who came to rescue the victims? Or will it remember them too, only as victims who were just doing their jobs? How to commemorate and articulate the loss of nearly 3,000 lives at the hands of terrorists and at the same time, how to create a memorial site for ongoing life and regeneration, and to what political, civic, and aesthetic ends. We would have to choose a design that had the capacity for both remembrance and reconstruction, space for both memory of past destruction and for new and ongoing life. It would have to be an integrative design, a complex that would mesh memory with life, embed memory in life, and balance our need for memory with the present needs of the living. It could not be allowed to disable life or take its place, but rather inspire life, regenerate it, and provide for it. It would have to be a design that animates and reinvigorates this site, but does not paralyze it with memory. In this way, we hope to remember the victims by how they lived and not merely by how they died that terrible day. In Arad and Walker's reflecting absence, we found both the stark expressions of irreparable loss in the voids and the consoling regenerative forms of life in the surrounding trees and pools of water. 
the cascading of waterfalls simultaneously recall the source of life and the fall of the towers, even as they flow into a further unreplenishable abyss at their centers to suggest loss and absence. The fuller and taller the trees grow, the deeper the volumes of the voids become. The taller the surrounding skyscrapers of the World Trade Center grow, the deeper the open commemorative space at their center becomes. The memorial plaza and names of the victims have been brought to grade, carved into the parapets at the pool's edges. The memorial now is stitched into the grid and fabric of lower Manhattan streets. And in a brilliant design gesture, a rod arranged for the victims' names to be engraved into what he called meaningful adjacencies. Every family asked where and with whom they would like their lost loved one's name to appear on the parapets at the edges of the waterfalls. And finally, the abstract geometries of the 9-11 memorial at ground level are anchored by the underground 9-11 museum beneath it, which tells the difficult history of that day, as well as the life stories of those who were lost. In a book I published in 2016, entitled The Stages of Memory, I recount a handful of memorials, memory-themed exhibitions, and museum debates that took place between 1991 and 2014, which together traced what I call an arc of memorial vernacular, connecting the dots between Maya Lin's design for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, Berlin's memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, and the National 9-11 Memorial. The stages of memory here refer both to the public staging of these memorial projects and to the incremental sequences or stages of these memorial processes as they unfold. In every case, the emphasis is on the process and work of memory over what we might call its end result. With this in mind, I would even suggest that as great and brilliant as a Rod and Walker's realized design may be, its true foundation is the process that brought it into being, which includes the hundreds of thousands of hours spent by the other 5,200 teams in their offices and studios at their family's kitchen tables designing their proposals. The stages of memory at Ground Zero include both the built memorial and the unbuilt proposals, which deserve and will surely have their own public showing one day. On the 9-11 memorial's opening and dedication on the 10th anniversary of the attacks, its critical reception was generally as warm as its reception had been among the victims' families. Martin Filler, the architecture critic for the New York Review of Books, called it, quote, the most powerful example of commemorative design since Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, a sobering, disturbing, heartbreaking, and overwhelming masterpiece, unquote. Others, however, found the scale of the waterfalls to be wildly disproportionate to its setting, dwarfing visitors and turning them into ant-like specks. On one of our first visits to the memorial site when it was under construction, we jurors were also taken aback by their gargantuan monumentality of the voids. But here we realized that together with the mandate to articulate the tower's footprints came a corollary mandate to memorialize the tower's sheer monumentality. Now when we visit these great pools, we realize that the inhumanly proportioned scale of the waterfalls actually creates unexpectedly intimate spaces among small groups and families as they cluster together in the plaza and at the edges of the voids. The soft roar of the waterfalls mutes almost all of the other ambient city sounds, muffling the voices of all but those standing within a few feet of each other, just as the architect Michael Arad intended.
In its first five years, over 23 million people visited the memorial from all 50 states and dozens of other countries. But on entering the plaza now, one immediately recognizes that the vast majority of visitors to the National September 11 Memorial are either out-of-town visitors or foreign tourists. In fact, relatively few New Yorkers themselves, aside from family members, seem to have much desire to see the memorial firsthand, including nearby residents who were forced out of their homes for weeks after the attacks. One sparkling day in May 2015, I spent an afternoon at the Memorial Plaza, just watching and listening to visitors as they strolled around the parapets, taking photographs and selfies and talking quietly to each other. Afterwards, I had plans to meet two dear friends of mine who lived for 30 years on Beaver Street, a couple of blocks away, for dinner nearby. I called them to see if they wanted to meet me at the memorial before going to dinner that evening. My friend Julian answered, why don't you come over here to our loft? We'll have some wine and cheese and go to dinner from here. Julian is an art dealer and his wife Karen is an artist. He was a block away from the World Trade Center when the first tower collapsed and survived the mass debris cloud by diving into a doorway and covering his head as it swept over him. A few years later, he was diagnosed with cancer and lost one lung to surgery. 70 years old and a non-smoker, he was told by his oncologist that cancer was likely a result of the toxic particles he had inhaled that day and which coated his apartment for several weeks after the attacks. When I arrived for our pre-dinner glass of wine, I asked my friends what they thought of the memorial. They looked at each other and replied in unison that they hadn't had a chance to see it yet, even four years after it opened and living only two blocks away. Then they said, but it looks quite beautiful by the photographs we've seen. There was nothing hostile in their response, just a sense of still being unprepared to revisit the pain of that day. They didn't need a memorial to remind them. I also sense that insofar as the memorial turns homegrown New Yorkers into tourists, it may even alienate them from their own beloved city. They feel that the memorial is not for them, but rather in their eyes, it is for those who weren't there on that day. Studying the incredulous look on my face, my friend Julian put his arm around me and then added with a wry smile, now if we had a place to visit where we could forget the 9-11 attacks, we'd be glad to go there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available on Apple Podcasts and GothamCenter.org, where you can also learn more about the rest of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for the season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann and Gabriella Montequin for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker for helping in the making of this episode, too. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center of City University of New York. Be safe, everyone, and enjoy Open House New York weekend.